Welcome to Live from Plato's Cave. I am Mario Veen. This is episode 35, Rights of Nature, with Jessica Den Outer. In Plato's Allegory of the Cave, Plato uses the example of justice to illustrate what it means for someone to return back into the cave. This person has been liberated from the shadow world and has been to the surface where they could see the true idea of justice. Then they return back into it and they're forced to defend themselves in court. So in this case, this person is referring to a higher idea of justice. But this idea of justice seems absurd to the judges and the lawyers and all the other ones that are in the court and that are just seeing the shadows of justice. So in this case, you could see the shadow realm, the people in the cave watching the shadows, as everyday society. And everyday society is changing all the time. Plato lived in a vastly different world than we do. In ancient Athens, Socrates was put to death. At the time, the judge thought it was just to give him a death sentence. But now Socrates is regarded as one of the greatest philosophers of all time. And at that time, it would seem absurd if someone would argue that a slave was allowed to own property. Because why? A slave is property. It's an object, not a subject. Of course, now that seems ridiculous to us. And what about animal rights? I mean, how can animals have rights? Animals cannot vote, animals cannot speak. But in our society now, fortunately, we do have animal rights. And what about the rights of nature, which we will speak about in this episode? Personally, I think this is really an idea whose time has come. And it's actually very logical to give rights to nature, or I should say to acknowledge that nature has inherent rights. And what is more absurd, that an old sequoia tree, who has been growing for 2000 years, can be cut down by a company that wants to build a ski resort there? Or that this tree can be defended in court by a lawyer? Well, I'm really excited to explore these kinds of ideas with Jessica. Because the last couple of episodes, we are still very much in the diagnosis stage. But what is our way out of this situation that we're in? This ecological crisis and this climate crisis? I mean, we do have laws that are supposed to protect nature, but as Jessica points out, nature keeps on declining every year. So obviously these laws don't work as well as they should. So Jessica offered something in her book and particularly one sentence made it click for me. It was like I had different kinds of puzzle pieces that were not connected and this was the puzzle piece that connected them. And maybe if you've been listening to episodes before, you will recognize this. So what she wrote is, nature already has a voice. It's up to us to learn to listen. So we can think about Mika Ball taking the time to listen in one of the first episodes of this podcast. But we can also think about the episode with Gerd Pista, about subjectification, about the importance of recognizing, in this case, students as subjects and treating them as subjects rather than objects. So what does it mean to treat nature as a subject, to treat a river as a subject, to treat a lake as a subject, and maybe to treat the entire planet as a subject? Well, the reason why this is so interesting is because, on the one hand, these are deeply spiritual and philosophical questions, because does a river actually have consciousness or not? Is a river one holistic entity? Or is it something that can be chopped up and divided into different parts? So it's a philosophical idea, but on the other hand, it literally holds up in court. It may be one of the most important puzzle pieces of the solution out of the climate crisis and the ecological crisis. And one of the reasons why it's so powerful is that it's not just a solution to a problem, like we could say, stop subsidizing fossil fuels, which may slow things down, but it doesn't bring a new vision. Michel Serre uses the metaphor of a ship heading for an iceberg and saying, well, it's like giving the order to slow down the ship, but not changing direction. No, we actually need a new vision, something beyond the climate crisis, something that we are striving for and that inspires us. So Sarah, who, by the way, we'll discuss in the next episode, wrote in The Natural Contract, which is also a book that inspired the Rights of Nature movement. He wrote, we must decide on peace amongst ourselves to protect the world and peace with the world to protect ourselves. 
But yeah, let's listen to Jessica Den Outer, who made it her life mission to establish the rights of nature, to acknowledge them and to ingrain them in our laws. Jessica has a bachelor's degree in international and European law and a master's degree in international environmental law. She has been advocated for the rights of nature and the interests of future generations since 2017, and she has received several awards for her work. In 2019, she was recognized as one of the youngest earth-centered law experts within the United Nations Harmony with Nature Network. In 2020, she was part of the top 100 most sustainable young pioneers. In 2022, she was nominated as one of the 10 Green Voices on LinkedIn, and she was nominated as one of the 35 up-and-coming professionals under the age of 35 in the field of peace and security. And her book, Rights of Nature, so far it's only been published in Dutch. It's a really good book, really well written and very inspiring, so I really encourage you to read it. And Jessica is working on the English version for the international audience, so I will let you know when it comes out as well. Yeah, so where where are we, uh, Jessica? <laughs> well, we are in the middle of Amsterdam, but as you can hear, there's birds here as well. Um, and I think, yeah, for me, that is really important as well, because people always see nature as something separate, something, you know, especially in the Netherlands, we put everything in, you know, designated areas. But I think there's nature here as well. We're surrounded by a few trees and a few birds. <laughs> so yeah, Some nice flowers behind us and... Uh... There's a canal, yeah. uh, as you have in Amsterdam. Yeah, because we were looking for, for a space to talk, but the restaurant, they were rebuilding and there was music playing there. So then I thought, okay, maybe we can go to a park. Well, of course, people know the Vondelpark in Amsterdam, but you said, yeah, we can go there, but it's quite busy. Yes. That's quite a problem, I think, when you want just a, a nice area to be silent, to be in touch with nature. But yeah, So you say you can, there's nature here too, so we don't need to worry about that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. And I think, well, I think that goes to show as well that people really need nature because there are so many people in the Vondelpark every day. Yeah. And it's so busy and people... I think really need that space to reflect and to be quiet. But then it gets so busy with all these people that come there that there's no space for that anymore. At mm -hmm. least that's what I feel. Um, so, I mean, spaces like this, just a random bench, you know, next to the canal are nice places as well. I think mm -hmm. to just sit and digest. Yeah, I read this article. I'll look up the title, but it was about, well, what are the solutions for the climate crisis? And the, mm. they said, well, we need solutions that don't just tackle the climate crisis but also the ecological crisis yes. and also the uh, justice mm. and, and all that stuff and they were talking about kind of a mosaic of, of natural areas around the yeah. world right so i was very happy to to read your book because it feels like i've been busy with this this issue for a while but mm. yeah as a philosopher but also from a scientific perspective and everything like that and yeah, maybe people have been hearing it in the la last few episodes. I was kind of frustrated about, okay, okay, yeah. but we know, you know, we've diagnosed the patient, right? Yes. <laughs> we also know what to do. Yeah. Uh, the solutions aren't the problem, but how do we do it? And I think, well, your book is, uh, well, do you, <laughs> I should ask you, uh, <laughs> do you feel like you have an answer or a start of an answer to that question? Um. Yes and no. And I say yes because I think the rights of nature and the examples I've described and the people I've interviewed um, really go to show that it can make a difference in nature protection and also including the voice of um, people like indigenous people and citizens as well. In some parts of the world, citizens are allowed to speak for the rights of nature. And I say no, because I think it's only part of the solution. And as you mentioned, there are so many different solutions in, you know, in science, in law. I think law is just one part of the whole solution. We need changes in every sector. Yeah. And I do recognize your frustration. I have the same because I feel like we've been hearing about this since the 70s. And, you know, things are increasing and accelerating and we know what to do and we are not doing it. And I don't know what it is, but I think one of the things that I stumbled upon is definitely politicians who are looking at short-term profit and they're only thinking about their own um, period of election yeah. and they're not looking beyond and they're 
afraid to make, you know, big suggestions that maybe won't be as popular with everyone else. And I think that's super frustrating because we need people to look at long-term solutions and, yeah, future thinking, basically. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. One, one of the earlier episodes in this podcast, I interviewed Marcia Bjornerud and she mm -hmm. wrote this book called Timefulness. Yeah. Have you heard of it? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the, well, I, I I made a big connection between what you're, but what is your, uh, yeah, what do, how do you see that connection between, like, being timeful and uh, the rights of nature? Um, yeah, well, I did, there's actually a lot of answers coming in yeah. up right now because I think on the one hand, um, I I also looked at rights as they've developed over time, and I think you know now. If people say it's such an absurd idea to give nature rights, I always give them the argument, well, but we wouldn't think it's absurd to say that one human being has rights and the other person doesn't. Mm -hmm. Human rights is something so basic and something we agree that everyone has. And I think the rights of nature have developed the same way over time. Yeah. And it's only the recognition now that something that has always existed, we can uh, put them into law now. Um, and then... But then there are still people who think this this is a crazy idea. But I think, again, in hindsight of like 20 years ahead of us, I think this will be something really normal because it's the fastest growing legal movement around the world. So yeah. right now it might seem absurd for some people. I don't think it is, but I think in 20 or 50 years time, it won't be anymore, hopefully. Yeah, well, one thing we know for sure, the normal ideas aren't going to get us out of this crisis, exactly. right? So we do need yes. crazy ideas. I told you about, I'm writing this book called uh, Klimaatgekte Klim Climate yes. Craziness, uh, because, uh, I mean, uh, it's driving me insane, that mm. the inaction, but also yes. people are just acting crazy and... Uh, but at the same time, uh, we need we need mad we need a little bit of madness because yes. uh, yeah, like uh, like you say, it used to be what a, a slave with rights yes. uh, that's mad, or a woman voting exactly. that's like a dog voting. But now actually, we have the party of animals. Yes. So um, yeah, it's quite normal. So it's quite it's it's like the next step. Yeah, and to be honest, it's not an easy position to be in because you will have a lot of opposition. Yeah and people who think these ideas are crazy. But then I think the biggest um, people that have changed our societies have always had this. You know, it's Galileo, it's, um, I don't know, Gandhi maybe even in his time. So I think, yeah, looking back in history, I think there's some, you know, solicitors to be found there with the people that have changed the world. Yeah. And we need to hold on to that. Well, and I mean, you can say, well, it sounds crazy, but... The more, at least for me, the more I think about, the more it makes sense. Yes. <laughs> because why don't we have rights of nature? That's that's more the, the crazy thing. So, exactly. Like, I think you write somewhere in the book. Um, yeah, I mean, we think it's normal that if we have a, a, a river like the Maas in the Netherlands, you chop it up in little bits yes. and I'm responsible for this bit and you're responsible for this bit. So I can put my garbage in the river but if you're downstream well yeah bad luck for you yes uh so um it's crazy to think that we can chop the world up into little pieces and and uh yeah think we can control it yeah but to return to timefulness like the the connection i made is that you say well so the politician the politicians who have the power to implement a law like for instance we have in the Netherlands the minister van der Waal who could really take steps in acknowledging the Wadersee as, as a legal uh, entity or yes. a legal person Do you, can you say yes. person? Legal, yeah. person, legal yes. person yeah so sh she could do that um, so this is but she's concerned maybe with the next years or the next months or something like that but you have this example, you, you say somewhere as well that it's strange that politicians take decisions about the existence of trees that uh, were there be long before they were born. And uh, you even talk about the sequoias in, in California. They Some of them have been growing since we started, you know, since the beginning of the, how you say that, jaartelling, <laughs> since the year zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then Disney wants to have a ski resort and they they're able to cut down the sequoias exactly yeah so um 
Yeah, but uh, oh, there's so much I want to talk about, but and we don't have much time. But so maybe just start with getting to know you a little bit, uh, because uh, okay, I know you shouldn't ask this uh, for a woman, but how old are you? Twenty six. Yeah, twenty six. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So I always want to, if I want to feel old, I always calculate what movie came out around. Oh, the yeah, so yeah. I think this is around the time the Matrix came out. Yes, and I love the Matrix. <laughs> ah, okay. But you didn't see it when it came out? Uh, no, 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 uh, just years later. Yeah. Well, that's basically also Plato's cave, right? Like, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is your life mission, you say. So how do you know, how do you know that? <laughs> If you're only 26? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's, maybe it's a bold statement to make. Um, but I think, well, I described it in my book as well. My publisher told me that I had to write a little bit of a personal story as well. Because I, in the beginning, I didn't. I just wrote about the rights of nature. I just wanted to, it to be about that. But then um, my publisher said to get people to come into the story and to understand you, you need to write something personal as well. So, yeah, and for me... My love and passion for nature has always been there um, since I was a very young girl. And I think it definitely started with my grandpa who took me out in the garden and to look at all the different insects um, that are living there. And that's where my fascination basically started. And I still went on to study law. This is what I described because I also had the sense of justice um, that I wanted to do something with. And in environmental law, which I specialize in, I found that I could combine these two passions. Um, But in the book, I also described that I enjoyed studying environmental law because I was able to manage those two passions. But then I couldn't, I didn't feel like it was enough because I kept hearing on the news on, you know, all the biodiversity laws and um, the effects of climate change and basically the inaction that we just talked about. And I didn't understand why that was happening if we have all these laws and regulations that yeah, are there to protect the nature. It yeah. doesn't make sense. And Um, well, that was actually also the year that I read about the Wanganui River in New Zealand, which is the first river in the world to uh, have become a legal person. And I thought, well, I didn't learn about this, but could this be a new approach um, to yeah, better protection of nature? And as soon as I dived into the rights of nature, I understood that this is not just a law. This is not just another environmental law. This is really a mind shift that we have a paradigm shift of yeah. how we think about nature. And that's when I realized that the law isn't enough. We also need to change the way we think about things because otherwise, yeah, I don't think anything will really change. Um, so in the rights of nature, I, I basically found, you know, the part where which I really enjoy, the law. But I also found the part of this whole mind shift and learning from indigenous cultures um, so I really felt like everything came together and I've been really passionate and interested in the rights of nature since 2017 um, and I, I couldn't let it go and yeah. when I graduated I couldn't find a job in the rights of nature because it's so new and there's no company or no organization that I could work with um, but I kept researching it in the evenings and in the weekends and then um, yeah even now thank god I was able to um, make it my career as well but i really feel like it's my life mission to keep pleading for this and especially in the netherlands because it's happening all over the world and i didn't understand why this wasn't a thing here yeah even though we have nature as well one of the most frustrating things because i get i have a lot of conversations about climate and you yes. get all this always the same uh, responses And one of the most frustrating things is like oh but the netherlands is such a small country yes and, um Uh, what can we do but uh, uh what is it like ecuador is it very small is it is it bigger or smaller than holland i don't know i don't know for it's, sure but it's not like a, a world power no exactly, exactly. <laughs> and you say that they're they're the, one of the most important ones and yes. also like a, a small city in america like mm, with seven yes. thousand residents yes, yes those are the ones that that uh now you are using to make exactly. the case in the netherlands right yes yeah Yes, I, I never understood that argument because that's basically shifting responsibility to others. And I don't think that's right. I mean, we have nature here as well. And then another argument I always get is, you know, but all nature in the Netherlands is not real. It's man-made. And I'm thinking, no, but why does that even matter if there's really important species that come here and biodiversity? Yeah. We, I, yes, honestly, I still don't really know what to reply to this argument because I, think, I just don't understand how people can think this way. Yeah. 
you felt okay this is what i want to devote my life to maybe until mm. it, uh, until it's finished <laughs> i hope actually you ha- can retire as well right well, i hope <laughs> yeah. so too yes but actually i was at uh, jane goodall's uh, lecture yeah. two days ago and she is gonna turn 90 next year yeah. and she was so inspiring and she actually told the audience that she hasn't had a day off in two years time mm-hmm. and when someone asked her but aren't you gonna retire or aren't you gonna do something else she said well but this is my mission and I feel like I have to keep asking attention for these kind of matters, yeah. you know. And so I think that there's a danger in that as well because, <laughs> you know, of course, it's you also need to think of yourself and take self-care. But yeah, yeah. but when you feel so passionate about something, it's And what different. inspires you about uh, Jane Goodall? Um, well, I think especially the story in the beginning. I mean, now she, everyone knows her and she's taken very seriously. But when she started, I think she was my age as well. Uh, when she went to live with the chimpanzees in uh, Tanzania and or in Gambia maybe it was and I think what's really inspiring is that no one took her seriously science Mm -hmm. didn't take her seriously because she named the chimpanzees she um, talked about their characters she talked about um, the way they behaved and the emotions they had Mm -hmm. and in science back in those days um, especially then Animals had to be given numbers because they were subjects that you had to study. And you couldn't talk about their characters or emotions because you have to be objective. And also only humans have emotions and characters. And I think that was so inspiring that Jane didn't believe in this. And she kept on, you know, investigating this. And eventually now she is taken seriously. And things have changed for chimpanzees in the past six years. But yeah, it does go to show that you need to, yeah, give a lot to in order to come there. So she was maybe considered little bit crazy uh, talking to uh, I mean you say subjects because that's that's yes. how we say in science but actually it means that you're an object right yes, you're, exactly. you're just a yes. you're just a number yeah yeah so uh, so uh, about rights of nature is that this, uh, how what is involved in that because in rights of nature we also need to start treating uh, like we have some trees so uh, is is the the trees that that we see now around us are they uh, subjects or entities or um, is it like should I see this park as a whole or and what about the birds in the trees yes. how how do you go <laughs> yeah. about this mind shift? Um, yeah, that's actually a difficult question because the um, different initiatives or the examples of the rights of nature do different things so for example ecuador recognizes rights of mother earth of all nature and that means that lawyers have used this argument to plead for i don't know trees um, rivers mountains um, different biodiversity hotspots so this has really given lawyers especially the freedom to choose you know what falls in this definition of nature but in other parts of the world for example in Spain um, the newest European country to have recognized the rights of nature they have taken Mar Menor so a very specific natural area as a subject of rights it's a le- kind of a lake right? yes yeah. a, a salt water lagoon um, so it's very closely related to the Mediterranean Sea and um, because of this there's really high ecological value um, even the seahorse appeared there years ago and this is a very specific area of nature that Spain now protects through the rights of nature um, but something that I'm still not entirely sure of is you know this approach works because Marmenor now has legal rights yeah. um, and there's other parts in the world where also specific natural entities get rights. But for me, it's still the question, why the, only this part, you know, why not another part that's also threatened? For example, the Netherlands, we now have an initiative for the Wadden Sea. But what about the Veluwe? Yeah. What about all the other areas that are under pressure as well? So I think there's something to be said of, you know, the different ways that all these initiatives go about. Uh, but if, what I think most important is that, you know, quite often people think that, uh, for example, the trees around us, there's maybe six trees around us. Um, is I don't think it's ever about individual trees. It's always about an ecosystem. So whether that be the saltwater lagoon or a whole forest or a mountain, it's always a bigger yeah. natural area. Oh. Yeah, it's so, I mean, this is, uh, so this podcast is interdisciplinary, so this is what I enjoy most, yes, because, exactly. because we're, I mean, these are philosophical questions, yes. like, is a, is a tree conscious yes. or not? Or, um, but 
uh, and I don't know anything about law, so I'm very happy to, to speak with you. But for me, as a philosopher, I, I mean, I would actually say a tree, yeah, is, is conscious. But the idea that, that actually my own question is very uh, dualistic, like mm -hmm. uh, we can, the same uh, thinking behind chopping up a river. Yes. Um, instead of treating it as a holistically as an entity. Exactly. So, it's the same like uh, is is my hand me or not and or my whole body where yeah, does yeah, my yeah. body start all those exactly. kind of questions you know does it matter for the rights of nature whether a tree is actually conscious or mm. is the law is that just kind of okay we are humans on this earth and we we need to organize our society and we made up this thing called the law <laughs> and it's it's a way yes. of organizing and mm. it kind of interacting with nature Yeah. Uh, well, the, so the first question is like, are you thinking about these kinds of questions or are you thinking more about like the pragmatic uh, yes. way of approaching it? Um, actually, no, because what I think is most inspiring about the rights of nature is that they're mostly derived from indigenous philosophies mm -hmm. um, and it's indigenous people that have led this movement. And it's funny because when you would ask an indigenous people, and I've done this, um, you know, what do you think about the rights of nature? They would say, well, we don't believe in rights. We don't believe in law because, you know, we have natural laws that govern our systems. Yeah. We don't believe in your Western thinking. Kind of arrogance. Of, exactly. Uh, yeah, that um, you can make up how the world should behave. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but then when we get in a deeper discussion, um, they understand that this is a way of how we can embed these ideas into a Western way of thinking that we know, yep. that we apply here in our daily lives. And I think this is the main argument of indigenous people in New Zealand and in uh, the US as well. This is just a way to hear their voice and their worldviews as well. Um, so I think that's really inspiring. And then as related to your second question, I think uh, the law is pragmatic and it is human made and it is... but. I think, again, I think the rights of nature is a tool, you know, to embed this way of thinking in our Western way of living. Because legal persons, you know, I think it's normal uh, for most people that Shell as a company, for example, is a legal person so that it has rights, it can have representatives. <laughs> for most people, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's just say companies then. <laughs> companies or mun even municipalities, even ships back in the day had legal personality. It's just a way of engaging in society. Yeah. And I think even more if we think these fictional things that we have created can have legal personality and can be, be represented, yeah. then I think the argument isn't too far to say that to say that nature yeah. should be this as well. And that, you know, a legal person has his own limitations as well. But I think it would be a first step to yeah. thinking about the um, interests of nature more and to taking those interests into account in all our decision-making. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, you know, people are now so obsessed with chat yeah. GPT yes. and artificial intelligence yeah. and all that stuff. And I get it. <laughs> but it's... Personally, I think it's a huge distraction, huge distraction. I mean, this, what you're talking about, that's what it is really about. I mean, we can think about, yeah, of course, we can think about Shell and, um, uh, you know, uh, Milieu Defensi has taken Shell to court. And all, yes. uh, that's, I mean, that's super important. Yeah. But, um, so there was this, Ongehoord <laughs> Nederland, there's this... Uh, you know this public broadcast media in oh, the okay, Netherlands yeah. and they're they're spreading a lot of disinformation and one of the things they said is uh, you know climate change or they don't even call it climate change they call it temperature change is no problem because even if it's 30 or 40 degrees people can survive at 30 or 40 degrees <laughs> so in other words it's no problem and of course that's an extreme example but I think it's an example yeah. of the same kind of thinking because mm. my question is okay Yes, you can, as an individual, you can go in the sauna and yes. it's actually hotter than that. Mm. But did you think about where will this human live? <laughs> What will they eat? Uh, who will yes. they talk to? Uh, yes. All those kind of questions are just, um, yeah. Ignore. And then again, it's again thinking only from the perspective of human beings. Because what about yeah. all the animals and the plants that will go extinct with temperature rise? And we are already seeing this happening. So it's not a fiction. It's not something that's made up. Mm -hmm. It's happening every day. Mm -hmm. And it's becoming worse. And I think, especially in the Netherlands, people don't realize, but we are one of the worst countries in 
Europe, in the European Union when it comes to biodiversity loss. We have lost so many of our um, native species. It's it's really crazy that people don't know this yeah. and but, just focus on humans again. Yeah, that's the insanity. There was uh, okay. We're having all these discussions about the wolf returning to yes. the Netherlands, and then there was uh, an article about this was actually in Germany about a, a sheep. Uh, how do you say that, herder, uh, oh. farmer, sheep farmer, let's say, uh, that had some sheep killed by the wolf. And that's, yes. I understand that's not good if that happens to you, your sheep and your business. But they were saying, yeah, because in the day of my great grandfather, we didn't have this trouble. But then I started to calculate. I said, yeah, actually, in the day of your grandfather, yeah. the wolf was everywhere and that yes. was normal. And it's just the last. So, again, returning to this idea of timefulness, we think yes. that the way the world now is, is normal. Yes. But if you look at the, in the indigenous cultures and, and the sequoia of 2000 years mm -hmm. old, yeah, it starts to uh, shift a little bit. Right? Yes. Yeah. But so, yeah, what uh, inspires me about you is that you're actually, I mean, you were at the UN last week, right? Yes. <laughs> so that's a different, uh, I can philosophize all I want, yes. but uh, that's where it happens, right? Yes. So what were you doing there? Um, yeah, I think this was super important because um, the UN has a program and that's called the Harmony with Nature program. And they research ways that societies can live in harmony with nature again. So, for example, they look at ecological economics or spirituality or biology and law as well. And then the rights of nature plays an important part. And I've been working with them in researching the rights of nature around the world. And then when I was invited to speak there last week, I was really happy because that's indeed the space where it happens. This is where the world leaders come together. Mm -hmm. This is where big decisions are made. So I felt it was really important to go there and to talk about the rights of nature. Um, and I was not the only one to do so. There were other experts invited as well and other youth, which I was really happy about. Yeah. Um, are you usually the youngest person in the room? Um, yes. Kind of well, events? I mean, it's shifting now because yeah. <laughs> I started working on this when six years six seven years ago so i was 20 about yeah you're, time, growing, so then, you're growing up as well <laughs> i'm right? growing up so i'm not any, i'm really happy that i'm not anymore um yeah. quite often and um but i think this was a really important dialogue because yes youth were present there were indigenous people yeah. and there were the usual diplomats um and yeah just speaking there even though it's a very short amount of time you can make a lot of impact and you can also see the politics of how everything is happening so for me it was a really important moment mm. Um, yeah, and I, it was to commemorate Mother Earth Day, which is something that Bolivia has um, instigated, I think, 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. So that was really great to be there and to talk about, you know, things that I think matter most, right? Yeah. Yes. But then you're advocating for something very concrete that would yes. actually... Uh, of course, it's not the whole story, as you say, but yeah. the moment, let's say, the Vadesay has a uh, is recognized as a legal person... Yeah. That means that you can, well, uh, enter dialogue and, and uh, many things can start to happen. And, and exactly. your book has many examples uh, about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so how do, you, how do you feel if you see all that's going on? You see yes. nature, okay, we have laws already that are supposed to protect yes. nature, but it's <laughs> while we're, while we're in, a, in a crisis, right? Mm. Um, I don't see much happening. Of course, I see a lot happening, but I don't see the government really taking action or companies or yeah. institutions or what uh, how are you feeling <laughs> well that, that's actually a really good question and something i've decided that i want to speak about more openly as well oh, because that's I great think, yeah. yeah it will help other people as well and i think there's a lot of youth that are feeling the same way at yeah. least so i've heard so yes there's this aspect of you know what what is the future gonna be um and this huge climate anxiety that's related to that and I think there's also feelings of despair and being angry at indeed governments not taking enough action. And like we said in the beginning of this conversation, we know what to do. So why yeah. are we not doing it? It's so frustrating. Um, so, yes, I have all these feelings. <laughs> yeah. But then I um, actually spoke to I was in an event with Mark Ruffalo and he's an actor. 
I have to look up which movies he plays in again. He's quite famous. Oh, he's like in uh, Marvel uh, yes. uh, movies, right? Yeah. Yes, he's a famous actor. And I was really lucky. I was in a Zoom meeting with him, <laughs> with other youth. And we were talking about this exactly. And all the other youth were saying the same. And he said, well, but the only thing you can do against these feelings is taking action. And Jane Goodall said the same thing two days ago. You know, the only way to turn these feelings into something positive is to take action. So that's what I try to do as well. But then on the other hand, I think it's really important to acknowledge these feelings and to talk about it because I think other people have this as well. And is this yeah. something that, that you uh, that affects your daily life? Yes, it does. And I think this is a pro well, this is the beautiful thing, but also the sad thing yeah. about my work is it's really big. It's my biggest passion. Um, but then, you know, these feelings creep into your daily life as well. And of course, you're always busy with how can I live more sustainable and what can I do? Um, and you always feel like you're not doing enough, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, mm -hmm. it does have an effect on daily life. But then uh, the positive things that are happening have a positive effect on my daily life as well. Yeah. So. And the best therapy is, uh, is action, right? Yes. Yeah. And going into nature. And that's quite funny because I, like you, I work behind my laptop a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and then <laughs> it's working on the protection of nature. And then I don't end up being in nature. Yeah. So <laughs> I really need to have these days, uh, you know, spent in... Yeah quietness and surrounded well, by trees <laughs> get a super note if the super note people are yes. listening to this and please just send jessica a free super note <laughs> um yeah so that's i mean that it's not it's not either or it's not like this romantic idea of nature uh wishy-washy and everything but we actually need to find also ways to to work in nature right and to live in nature and Actually, it's quite perfect that we're sitting now. We're sitting now in in outside yeah. in the park, yes. and yeah, lots of activities outside. Do you have any? So, okay, action is very good. Uh, it's a good therapy. Do you have other, maybe tips or experiences you would like to share for for mm -hmm. young people who are struggling with this? And actually, yeah. I am very interested in this question because I think one of our responsibilities now is because we are we uh, my generation and all the generations mm -hmm. are failing at such a huge yes. skill is really unfair the, the least we can do is prepare people for yeah what's coming yes so right so sometimes people say well just go to parties enjoy your life yes. and why be so yes. busy with that you yes know? Mm. so uh, maybe i can ask you like how maybe you started mm -hmm. when you were 17 or something like that yeah. right so how honest can I be to a 17-year-old when I'm talking to a 17-year-old and they're asking me oh. something about, so what is actually, what is going on with the climate crisis? Yes. How honest should I be oh. or what? Mm. Mm. Well, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think for the first question, you know, what can young people do? I don't have a definitive answer because I think it's a work in progress, something you keep discovering yeah. over time as well. But I think um, I found, well, like we just said, the best therapy is, you know, getting away from your laptop sometimes and taking time to reflect and be in nature more. Going in nature, right? Yes, that's, for sure. That, let's pause with that one because yes. that, that's what you say your grandfather yes. did with you. And that's actually, yes, for sure. I had that as well with my family. Uh, that's uh, maybe the best education yes. you can get because education is not just schools, but just... Yes. Not just like taking a walk, but sit there, exactly. you know, be quiet. Yeah. And, um, well, the funny thing is, like you, I like to philosophize. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> another thing that uh, recently came to me is that I'm, so I'm taking more time doing this because I need time to reflect and yeah. to um, recharge basically my energy again. But then when I'm sitting in nature, I have to switch off my monkey mind, so to say, mm -hmm. um, in thinking about all the facts and the technical details that I know about nature declining, because then I can end up in the same loop again. So I think it's also a question of mindfulness then, of being in nature and really turning off um, and really recharging and I mean there's science backing this up as well sure um, and then of course taking action you know and I think it's funny I was um, invited to speak on TV a couple of weeks ago at Humberto Tan and um, well, that's one of the big talk shows yes it was one of the big talk yeah. shows and 
you know, you would say that maybe this part was what inspired me most. But what inspired me most is that a young girl came up to me afterwards. Well, not very young. I think she was maybe 22 or 23. And she came up to me afterwards and she said, you inspire me because I study medicine. And in the medical world, there's no talk about sustainability. There's a lot of plastic we use. And it's actually one of the most polluting industries that we have in the world. And no one knows about it because we don't talk about sustainability in medical care. And she said, you inspire me to take, you know, to see if I can do something working on sustainability in my field. Mm-hmm. And this is what I'm doing it for as well, to inspire you to, you know, do your passion, follow your passion. I mean, you don't have to study law. I just think you need to do something you're really passionate about and then find a way to bring in the reality of today, which is the climate uh, emergency and which is, you know, nature declining. And I think you can find ways to do that. So yeah, this is what inspired me a lot. Oh yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I actually work in, I work in medical education. Oh really? And I I actually work as well on a project uh, uh, about the planetary health right yeah. and it's the idea that the health of an of a human being is dependent on the health of yes. the planet but at the same time the the healthcare industry if it was a country worldwide it would be the top uh, in the top five most polluting countries yes. in the world so in the netherlands it's seven percent of the carbon emissions yeah uh, so it's it's also that's the irony it's also a big part of the the problem but what we encounter because this is quite new it's getting a lot of resistance as well, mm-hmm. but it's actually there's a lot of things happening now as well. Uh, so I spoke to someone, and they wanted to teach about this, and this mm-hmm. was like a, a like a how do you say that a senior, senior oh, yes. teacher. Yes. They said, well, I was talking to some students, medical students, and I found out they are the ones that should be teaching that. So he uh, said oh. they they can oh, design a so course cool. and everything like that. Yes. And and those are, uh, I mean, that's what fascinates me as well about this issue is that young people are much more knowledgeable mm. about this in a way yes. because n- normally you say, well, the more experienced person yes. is more knowledgeable, but the experience that older generations have, and I'm generalizing because I know, <laughs> yes, I mean, course. my parents re- raised me very conscious of yes. age and everything like that. But in general, mm. well, I once suggested the solution for the climate crisis is early retirement. Yes. <laughs> because the experience that people, older people have is the experience of, let's say, the old world that yes. we need to, mm. the old way of thinking that we, we need to uh, yeah. leave be- behind, right? Yeah. And if you explain to, to a young person the rights of nature i think yeah of course i mean why isn't that yes, happening already <laughs> i know yeah and that's that's exactly and let's do what can we oh it's not happening already what what can we do exactly yeah so oh that's perfect so you 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 know you can you can inspire others yeah. uh, you know there's there's actions you can do it's you made it your career yeah and you're not alone right yeah i mean this podcast is therapy for me as well because yeah. I get a lot of resistance to it and I think, oh, right, we're on the same team, right? Exactly, yeah, uh-huh. for sure. I mean, you can find inspiration and, you know, motivation by other people who are also working on bettering the world. And I don't think, for me, it's not just people that work in law, mm-hmm. definitely not. Um, and I think, as you said in the very beginning, which I think is really interesting because a lot of people see the climate crisis as something separate from biodiversity loss and from other ecological crises, but everything is interconnected. So we should work that way as well. Yeah. Um, so yes, I believe in this interdisciplinary approach as well. Yeah. Great. So let's talk about what what needs to happen. It's le- it's more concrete because it's about language, yes, right? Like yes. you need you need to invent a new language yeah. for. Uh, I think actually you were involved in this as well here in in the Amstel Park. I think oh, you yes. were like the lawyer of the tree <laughs> yes. or something. Yes. So can you, can you talk about that? How did you know what the tree wanted or what yeah. they, how, how did you go about that? Um, yeah, so this project was really cool because it was uh, made up by an um, artist called Elmo Vermeijs. And it was uh, co-created with um, Jan van der Venus and myself as the lawyers, the legal um, part, and then also with science. So people from the Wageningen University that were involved as well. And we really tried to find a way where we could combine um, um, art, science and law. And that resulted in this creation of the project called, um, well, in English it would be Lawsuit of the Trees. Um, The trees are speaking, sort of. And what we did is the scientists from the Wageningen University um, recorded 
or I don't know what this in, the English word for this is, but they basically researched um, the circles in trees, the jaringen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. When uh, every year there's a new exactly. Ring, yeah, people know what we mean. Yeah. So how t- how trees grow? I yeah. think maybe that's the most important part. And what she found in her studies is that in years of drought, uh, which we've had quite a lot in these mm-hmm. past few years, um, the trees show this and actually by researching the trees we can find out a lot about climate change um heat waves um periods where the trees don't get enough water and she basically researched this and then we as the lawyers took this and said well the trees don't have any rights they're regarded as objects and if we would say that trees have an intrinsic right to exist to be there to thrive Um, to maintain ecological cycles, then climate change is one of the biggest threats to the rights of these trees. And so we created a a fictional lawsuit around this. And that was really interesting because, first of all, we had never spoken on behalf of the trees. So it was a really interesting experience for us as well. Um, But we tried to make it concrete because we really... We didn't just want it to be an art project which, you know, inspires, but nothing is done after. So we try to make it as concrete as possible and link it to human rights as well, um, to compare tree rights with human rights. Uh, so, yes, from a law perspective, it was really interesting. Uh, that, that part was very interesting to me yeah. as well, because I thought, yeah, natural rights means like, oh, a tree, you can... I mean, that's probably the kind of questions you get to yes. ridicule, right? Oh, that's okay. If the water say gets a vote, uh, yes. gets a, are they going to, which part they yes. are going to vote for? or are going to, uh, yeah. But then you say in the book somewhere that, that um, yeah, but we also have, you know, we have human rights and we have animal rights exactly. and, we, and yes. it means animals don't have the same kind of no. rights as humans. So you kind of need to kind of, yeah, how does that work? How do you... Yeah. Uh, well, that was actually inspired by Thomas Berry, yeah. uh, who was one of the biggest philosophers on Earth jurisprudence, which is basically the philosophy of the rights of nature yeah. behind it. And I think that was really interesting because that's the argument you get indeed. People say, oh, but, you know, what if um, a river is going to sue me or um, all these very human related concepts of thinking and i think what thomas berry did and this was in the 80s and i think that's super inspiring because back in the day he was regarded as you know some crazy person as well now his ideas really have come into fruition and he has said that no we have to look at the ecosystem what does the ecosystem need so um trees might have different rights than humans and they do because we don't need you know humans have for example a right to education i don't think trees need a right to education um so it's really looking at the ecosystem it's, it's rather what that it? we can be educated by the trees exactly <laughs> well yes maybe <laughs> that's a really good point um but it's really looking at the ecosystem what does the ecosystem need and i think the more even more interesting argument that he makes is that he says we have always had natural laws Na- rights of nature have always existed so yeah. before humans existed nature was existing it was flourishing it was you know maintaining its ecological cycles it's the natural processes of the earth and we have just found a way to violate those mm-hmm. and now has come the time where we put those natural laws into a legal system where right. we can account uh, hold humans accountable for respecting those rights as well and i think for me that's one of the most Im- interesting arguments and actually my publisher <laughs> first told me not to put that in the book because he thought it was too philo- philosophical but i actually think it's really important because i believe these are natural laws as well this is what has governed right. our earth and and you need that for it to make sense yes i think your book is is actually very philosophical mm. speaking about philosophical questions but then also tying them to what works in the world yes. and they so you describe okay they tried this in ecuador they tried this in new zealand yeah. they, they tried this in the you you tried a lot of things in yes. the netherlands and you can learn from that as well but it's the, these ideas are very philosophical like um if the wadersee has rights is mm. that something that we give to the wadersee or is it something oh. that the wadersee already has and we just need to acknowledge it so yes. actually now we're not yeah, acknowledging yeah, yeah. it so we're actually our legal system is mm. uh, imprecise or something just as you can say that a women's rights is not like oh now in the goodness of our heart we give rights to women yeah. no of course of course women yeah. have rights yeah so is that how you see it or is do you see it like it's really something we have to mm. give yeah well I, I'm not sure if this will make sense, but for me it's different because 
first, I think the Wadden Sea, for example, we are trying to make it a legal person. And yeah. I think legal personhood, as I just explained, you know, it's, it's something we have for ships, for companies, for municipalities. It's a legal personality yeah. which enables you to engage in society. I don't think this is something that the Wadden Sea already has and that we're giving. I think this is a very concrete way of recognizing the rights of the modern sea eventually it's about engaging in and it's about um you know listening to the modern sea and it, this is a tool to get there yeah. so I, I, legal personality is very even more human made than rights um but then the rights of nature and i'm thinking of for example ecuador where the you know the rights of nature to exist, to thrive, to evolve, to maintain ecological cycles. That part, I think, is something that is already existent. Mm. And that's something we are just recognizing now. So I do see a little bit of a distinction between legal personality, something very concrete, man-made, and the rights of nature, right, which yeah, I think yeah, yeah. is... And legal personality is a form of the rights of nature, right? But yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if this makes sense. But this It is makes total sense. And it's... Um yeah, I'm thinking because we just have a few minutes, but uh, I think it's important to, to talk about it because I want to talk about because one of the powers of the book is you yes. end with a list of actually oh. <laughs> anyone can do something, right? Yes. So I also want to ask you, anyone who li who's listening to this, okay, they can actually, you know, stop the recording and take action now, yes. right? Yes, But let's do that at the end because I don't want them to stop oh, recording. Oh, yes, it. of course. <laughs> uh, it's it also related to climate justice. So we in the Netherlands and in the West, we have a certain worldview uh, about being, like what is what is real. For instance, in India, uh, the the Ganges from already, I don't know, probably thousands of years yes. ago, it's mother mm. Ganges. Yes. So it's not a metaphor for that. Yes. that it is actually <laughs> our mother. Yeah. <laughs> and then the British come along and they say, no, it's not. But now we're starting to go back on that right yeah. so in in i know that in practice it doesn't do much yet mm. it's still like the let's say the holiest river in the world by many people is still the one of the most polluted rivers yes in the world. but there's some legal recognition now yeah. that the ganges is alive where was i going with this yeah so i was i was talking about something that i need to pay more attention to as well we have a very limited perspective mm, and there yes. are many cultures in the world that yes. are much older and that have yeah. actually much more wisdom to to share about yes. it you're dutch and you're writing this book but how did you go about trying to do justice to those voices as mm. well yeah that was really difficult um of course because i i think all of us have to recognize we're limited, right? In our way of thinking. And especially when you're brought up in the Western world. Um, so the only way I thought I could do justice to these examples and to pay most respect to these examples is by doing very thorough research, <laughs> which I've done for every example. And also by speaking to, um, you know, the people that are involved in these initiatives. And sometimes it was more difficult. Um, for example... Um, the Maori in New Zealand, I would have loved to speak to them, but it yeah. was really difficult to establish, to find ways to contact them. Um, so I ended up speaking to a law professor who had, who had done so. Mm -hmm. um, and by all the other examples, I did try to speak to the local people and especially the people that started these initiatives. Um, but that also led to a lot of limitations because I only speak Dutch and English. Um, so, you know, for example, the Indian court cases, I had to run through Google Translate and it was so difficult. Yeah. Um, so there were <laughs> quite a lot of limitations there as well. Um, but that, what I think is, and this relates to one of your first questions, what I think is super interesting about the rights of nature is that, you know, this Western way of thinking, we think, we always focus on economic development and the Netherlands is one of the richest countries in the world and, you know, we're doing everything so well. And I think in the rights of nature, this whole idea is taken aback because now we are learning from countries that we see as underdeveloped, countries like Ecuador, Bangladesh, India, um, Colombia, Bolivia, you know, these are countries that we regard as underdeveloped in comparison to us, to our economic development. But mm. I think they're ahead of us. They're actually, the, their way of thinking is... Yeah especially in regard to nature. And I think this is super fascinating for me and why I wanted to, you know, even though it was super difficult, that's why I wanted to describe these examples because I think we need to learn from these countries. Yeah. Well, that's such a good point. Yeah. Because I remember, because I grew up in the 80s, that's the time we could have acted to not have a climate yes. crisis, but we didn't. 
but that's that's where I heard it from. That's where the voices came from. Exactly. They were warning, like we're we're you know going to a huge disaster, and yeah. now uh, yeah, I have to be aware of this as well because you have these. Uh, uh, people are learning about it, which is great. But yeah. you also have the how do you say the this this phenomenon that you learn something about it and you yes. think you know everything. Yes. But actually, you're still you're exactly. just starting. And yeah. I think yeah, we are. I mean, I speak for myself. I am just starting. I think you are way ahead of me. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm still learning as well. Yeah, sure. but you never stop learning. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think this, you know, this is a different topic, but this is so important to children's education yeah. as well because I was thinking back of. Um, um, high school and I was thinking you know what did I learn in history there and I learned that the Netherlands well maybe a sort of a nationalistic sense of how great the Netherlands is and that we had our golden era yeah. and here being in Amsterdam you know all the richness that we have around us and I was I mean I was told about slaves and what we did to them but not in great details not something that really stuck with me the focus was really on this golden era of the Netherlands you know and I think I was thinking this is a different topic but I was thinking back on that and I was thinking it's these kind of things that make a difference how ignorant are we not to include this in our education you know the real consequences of what happened what we did to sla former slaves and then yeah. this relates maybe to your point as well you know I mean I'm really happy because this is a positive note but a lot more education is paying attention to the climate crisis now. I think young children sure. really are learning. So thank God there's a change. Yeah. There, but it's really important. Yeah, well, they're ahead, like I said before. And not yeah. just, uh, you know, it's a nice thing to say, but actually, because yeah. if I have a question, usually the people I, I ask about it are younger than uh, me. Yeah, or yeah. the people are like Marsha Bjornewood and everyone yes. who, you know, were ahead of their time as well. Um, and, and can, do you also do teaching? Can people invite you? Um, yeah, well, yes, I've started doing this because um, I had started to give some lectures at universities yeah. to students. Um, and I think that started because I was, you know, law as a law student, you're being very traditionally um, um, educated. You know, you're being told you can be a lawyer or a, a judge. And this is a very traditional way of thinking in law. So I think that's where it started, where I thought, you know, I want to teach about the rights of nature because I want law students to know that they could take a different route as well. You don't have to become a traditional lawyer or judge. Um, so, yes, I do this with universities as well. And I don't, I was actually someone asked me why I didn't write a children's book about the rights of nature. And sure. I mean, I think I want to because, as you can see, I'm really passionate about young people and changing their education. Yeah. But I don't think I've done, I, I don't think I'm capable of doing this. This is so funny. <laughs> so, what, children, yeah. not yet, but yeah, yeah, who knows in the future. Um, I think you, I think that's a great idea. I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, do that. Do that for sure. Who knows? Um, yeah, this is so nice. This is the uh, alarm. <laughs> yes. <Right? laughs> That's at 12 in the Netherlands. And it's just so nice how it uh, comes in because there's nothing happening. But actually, we need to be sounding the alarm. But we are when we are sounding, actually sounding the alarm, nothing is happening. They're yes, just testing I know. it. So, <laughs> this uh, should be the climate but alarm. But it's, it's a perfect soundtrack for, uh, you know, because for the urgency of the issue. Yes. Uh, so last question, what people listening to this, what, what can they do? What can they do right now? Yeah, well, this was a big question for me as well when I was writing the book, because I wanted to give people perspective. And yeah. I mean, I have a background in law, but not everyone has that. And I don't think... You have to have a background in law to work on the rights of nature. So one of the one of my biggest inspirations, actually, I wrote about this in the book, is um, um, Wim Eikelboom, mm -hmm. and he heard this whole story about the rights of nature, and he thought, how can I use this um, this message? Because again, rights of nature is just a tool to have the voice of nature being heard. This is really my message, and he actually went to his municipality and spoke on behalf of the river and I won't say too much about it because it's, it won't do it justice. It's just a beautiful poem that he wrote on yeah. behalf of the river and I think that was so fascinating. Yeah. So yes, you can go to your municipality, you can speak on behalf of nature in you know evenings where citizens are invited to speak on you know municipal uh, decisions that are being made or you can uh, go to the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature. Yeah. This is a really big international NGO that researches uh, the rights of nature. Um, you know, you can read more about it, learn more about it, educate yourself. And um, 
it has always been citizens um, that are you know have led to these changes in the law and i think this was super inspiring for me as well mm -hmm. so it's not up to politicians or jurists i mean they have a really big role to play but i think the power is in citizen-led movements and yeah. i think this is the right of nature so and it's always been that way with justice right with yes. uh, different yes. kinds of justice so and yeah. i just uh, as you were speaking this old lady came past <laughs> and she took some photos yes, because did. the park is also quite uh, dirty yes and i think that's i mean that's just also a perfect example yeah. saying yeah why is it why is it dirty right yes and and another thing i really liked about uh, what you say is that you can take a piece of earth out of the market yes so if you uh, if you have some resources you can buy a yes. piece of land and yes. give it back to itself yes so it's not there for human beings or whatever mm. it's just yeah. there uh, for itself yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah this is another example yeah but as uh, this was super inspiring for me as well two days ago jane goodall she said you can make a difference every day yeah. and you you might think it's very small but for example not eating meat um makes a huge difference um, but then you inspire other people as well to do the same and i think this is the way that these small actions can lead to bigger changes and she said you know you can do something every day well thank you so much thank you <laughs> thank you for listening go to jessicadenauta.com for more information on jessica and our work go to livefromplatoscave.com for more information on this podcast and to listen to other episodes and in the next episode, we will discuss Michel Serre's The Natural Contract with Aldo Houten. I hope to see you then.